daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, NATO summit wraps up with war support for Kyiv. But why has the alliance refrained from offering a timetable for Ukraine membership? Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi says China and ASEAN are pushing ahead with free trade area talks. We'll bring you more on China-ASEAN relations. An expert panelist from the Pacific Islands Forum has criticized the IAEA report on Japan's discharge of nuclear-contaminated wastewater. What are the safety concerns? First, on today's show, NATO has declared that Ukraine would be invited to join the alliance, but did not say how or when. NATO said in a communique that Ukraine's future is in NATO and it will be allowed to join when allies agree and conditions are met. For more, we are now joined by Dr. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of Birmingham. Professor Lucas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here. Um, so uh, the, the communique says that Ukraine's future is in NATO, but it is, does not offer a specific timetable. How do you look at this? There was a path set out by NATO. It was made clear, in fact, how Ukraine would be able to join after, after the defeat of the Russians. Specifically, and very, very importantly, although there's not a specific timetable, what NATO did is they said that the normal requirement for what is called an MAP, which is the paperwork made to join NATO, that requirement for the MAP, which can take several years, has been waived. It is no longer required. So Ukraine is being fast-tracked to membership again once, once the Russians defeated. Okay, so can you explain why um, NATO would say that um, unless Ukraine prevails in the war against uh, Russia, there's no membership to be discussed at all? Uh, I mean, h- how do you interpret this message from, you, from yeah, NATO? Very yeah, very good question. First of all, two points. One is, is NATO never sets a timetable for a country to join. What NATO does is it sets out the conditions for joining. And so the conditions for joining in this case are, all right, once Ukraine is politically, militarily, and economically stable, it becomes a member. Now, you cannot do that while Russia is still trying to conquer Ukraine. Even though Russia is now on the defensive on the battlefield, and in fact is gradually losing on the battlefield, Ukraine cannot join NATO while we are in the war. It is after the war, whether Vladimir Putin finally gives up, whether he accepts political negotiations, that the process can begin. I mean, why cannot uh, Ukraine join NATO before the war is over? Because under NATO's Article 5 uh, clause, any member of NATO that is attacked, every other member of NATO is obligated to come in to its defense. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if Ukraine was to join NATO during the Russian invasion, then every NATO country would have to put in its troops, put in its armed forces. And NATO has been very clear that this is not a war between NATO and Russia. So you do not have Ukraine join NATO to give the Russian propaganda vindication, to, to give it some support. You make clear that NATO supports Ukraine, but that this is not NATO in Ukraine fighting this war. 
Well, you said this is not a war b- between NATO and Russia, but you know many would argue that、uh, the root cause of the Ukraine war is NATO's eastward expansion. Would you agree? And and with the ongoing tensions between Russia and NATO, how might this decision to invite Ukraine to join the alliance affect the broader security dynamics and, and the relationship between Russia and NATO?、Uh, only four percent of Russian territory borders NATO countries. Uh, a NATO country has never attacked Russia. Ukraine has never attacked Russia. So no, I mean, let's kick that excuse to the side as reliable analysts. This was not a war about NATO. This was Vladimir Putin's choice. Now, what will happen after if Ukraine joins NATO? Well, it contributes to what is already happening because of Putin, and that is is that Putin has actually re-energized NATO in terms of its eastern flank. You have the Baltic countries. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. You have Poland, who are much more forthright in their commitment to security. You have the Nordic countries.、Uh, Finland has joined NATO. Sweden will soon follow. In fact, the irony here is, is that Vladimir Putin, far from weakening NATO with this war on Ukraine, he's actually the guy that strengthened NATO.、Uh, he didn't intend that to happen, but that's been the effect of what he, of his choice to attack. Okay, so、uh, this communique promises、uh, continued support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. How do you think this commitment will be translated into practical assistance on the ground, and what impact do you think this will have on the ongoing crisis? Again, we saw this very clearly yesterday、um, in terms of a series of announcements at the NATO summit, which is part of why you know Zelensky says it's a good result, and that is a series of of、uh, NATO countries pledged more military aid for Ukraine to defend itself and for Ukraine to pursue its counteroffensive to liberate its territory.、Uh, Germany, for example, pledged to provide more air defense systems, Patriot air defense systems, to provide Leopard tanks, to provide other equipment.、Uh, Japan pledged humanitarian aid. Norway has pledged air defense systems and humanitarian aid. Australia has pledged armored vehicles. I could go on with the list. But I think maybe the most important announcement is that the G7 countries have announced a security framework for Ukraine, even during、uh, the Russian invasion. And that security framework is: look, we will provide you the military assistance to defend yourselves, but importantly, we'll provide you the economic assistance and the financial assistance so that you can govern your country and so that you can already undertake the reforms that will be required when you apply for NATO membership. Um, so, do you really believe that、uh, more weapons, more military aid to Ukraine will help bring the war to an end? Well, it will help defend Ukraine.、Mm-hmm. I mean, it will prevent Russia from, you know, overrunning Ukraine. And wouldn't you agree that that's the priority? Is that, you know, providing for safety for Ukrainian civilians, for the Ukrainian people, millions of whom have been displaced, tens of thousands of whom have been killed. By the Russians, you know that's the priority is Ukraine defending itself. But I mean, how do you think、system. Russia will respond? Don't you think this this is、oh. going to ask further escalate the tensions? Oh, I mean, Russia will Russia will scream about it because Russia will realize that it has less chance of winning if Ukraine continues to get support. I mean, here's the point: when you when you punch a bully in the nose, the bully screams louder. And so Russia is going to scream because it didn't succeed. Oh, how dare these people help Ukraine defend itself? Uh, Mr. Lavrov, the foreign minister, has issued a very provocative statement that if Ukraine gets fighter jets, you know, it will mean the prospect of nuclear conflict. You know, 
that's Russia trying to scare all of us, including trying to scare China to get China to support Ukraine, uh, to support Russia. And I think the Chinese leadership quite wisely since the start of this year has done two things. One is they told the Russians, we don't support the invasion. It needs to stop. And two, in recent days, the Chinese leadership has told the Russians, we will not support you if you threaten to use nuclear weapons in response to what is happening. I think that's a very sensible line not to help attack Russia. No one's talking about that but to try to finally get a Russia withdrawal from occupied Ukrainian territory. Uh, so do you feel that NATO has essentially already get get itself involved in this war um, against Russia? Do you think this has um, already become a proxy war between NATO and Russia? No, NATO is involved to support Ukraine. You know, NATO is not attacking Russia. <laughs> that's, that's the again, the, the Kremlin sort of misleading line here. The reason why you have tanks given to Ukraine is not to attack Russia. It's for Ukraine to defend itself. The reason why missiles have been given to Ukraine is for Ukraine to defend itself. The reason why you've had an escalation in armored vehicles and uh, has been so Ukraine's counteroffensive can liberate territory. The reason why air defense systems are given to Ukraine is not to attack Russia, but to defend itself against the Russian air attacks that occur on a daily basis the drone attacks, and indeed the missile attacks. So no, this is not NATO trying to wage war on Russia when it provides the equipment. We need to have our, our language precise here. We've been talking to Dr. Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies and International Politics at University of uh, Birmingham. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi says China and ASEAN are pushing ahead with talks on a third version of the China-ASEAN freight trade area. Wang Yi is in Jakarta, Indonesia, to attend a series of meetings with ASEAN foreign ministers. Wang Yi said China and ASEAN should jointly safeguard the global free trading system, uphold the ASEAN centrality, and jointly maintain regional peace and development. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. Um, so can you tell us more about uh, the key issues on the agenda of this, this series of meetings in Jakarta? Yeah, we can find that from the agenda, there are many meetings. The meetings, you know, there are so many parties who are taking part in the different kind of forums, uh, which uh, we can find that ASEAN countries are one of the very important partners. So we do like to, to try to discuss more things about, so something about the existing rules like the RCEP, but also some of uh, the potential more topics like for the new energy and other issues. I think that's most of uh, important thing of that is we are trying to to realign about what our attitudes and about the cooperation, what we can do. Maybe there are maybe there are some misunderstanding in some certain issues, but we want to use this opportunity to clarify these issues. Um, so how do you look at China's support for the ASEAN-centered regional cooperation framework? And in what ways has China contributed to the building of an ASEAN community? It's a tradition that ASEAN is uh, in the centering of the cooperation between this area and the Eastern Asia. And I think that is a kind of uh, idea that we have uh, kept for so many years. We know that for the China-ASEAN 
free trade agreements started from the 2001 or 2002. We started by doing that as a center by ASEAN countries. Well, when the RCEP started to try to improve its uh, coordination, the ASEAN countries are also the very important base and centers as a discussion and a negotiation. I believe that ASEAN countries, they are a kind of a very important communities for integration in the region uh, compared with many others like EU and like uh, some, some uh, uh, the, the Mercosur in the Latin America. So they are trying to improve the coordination between different members and that is definitely will benefit the partners with them, including China. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Wang Yi said that China and ASEAN are pushing ahead with talks on a third version of the China-ASEAN free trade area. So how much do we know about uh, the progress that has been made in their negotiations and what benefits do you think this agreement will bring to both China and ASEAN member countries? Yeah, from the you know the timetable, we know that uh, the ASEAN and China, we have uh, many talks, uh, I mean, the rounds of talks already. I think that in this regard, we, we know that from the news from the MOFCOM, we have many issues, including mainly two aspects. The first one is trying to make better use of the RCEP and also some other existing rules trying to improve the trade facilitation and also the investment facilitation. I think it's kind of a very important consensus reached by all the parties, not only in this region, but also in the multilateral platforms. And the second is we are going to discuss more new topics, including the digital economy, the low carbon development, and also many other issues. So maybe in this kind of uh, activities, they are, they, are, uh, they are developing very quickly. We see many enterprises and also countries are involved in the discussion about the new rules in this region, but there is no other uh, kind of existing rules. So maybe for China and ASEAN countries, we can try to do some experiment, trying to provide better platform and environment for the companies to discuss about the new activities, like for the innovation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Wang Yi also mentioned the importance of strengthening solidarity and coordination among countries. In your opinion, what are the key challenges that ASEAN countries and their dialogue partners currently face in this regard? Yeah, ASEAN countries are a very special region because in this region we see that many of them are developing economies while there are also some very I mean, uh, high, highly or developed economies like the Singapore, while there are still some countries like the Brunei, which is a uh, uh, very uh, full, uh, plenty of uh, the crude oil and resources, and also there are uh, very big countries like Indonesia. So the diversity, I mean, the differences between the different countries, like for the resources, like for the uh, industry structure, uh, and also many things are quite different. So how can they just trying to align into our same consensus rules? It's a very difficult time. So when we're talking about the integration, I think that many or like all the ASEAN countries, they are waiting to have better integration. I think from the constitution of the ASEAN, they are trying to reach our kind of goal like EU. So it's not only something to do with the trade and investment, but also many policies need to be coordinated, like the monetary policies or even fiscal policies. So in this regard, it's very, very uh, challenging for the uh, so different countries to reach that goal. Well, another challenge may be uh, existing 
because that ASEAN countries, they are, uh, I mean, the size are quite different, and there are so many other countries, especially out of these regions, they are trying to interfere with uh, issues in the regions. So this has bring a lot of um, risks and also some some kind of impacts on the society like you know in some countries uh, the there are military bases and they are trying to interfere with the issues in this region well that actually are bringing more risks and uh, it's not so easy for the other countries to reach their goal so actually in the so many years that other countries in trying to improve the connectivity but it's not very quick so i, I think that's a, it's a time we should try to address that because it's not only about their uh, own business, about also about uh, recovery after the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so with uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also attending the ASEAN meeting, what do you believe are the top priorities on his agenda? Yeah, uh, I know that it's uh, also a tradition that uh, U.S. will also invited or involved in the discussion with ASEAN countries in this occasion. I think that uh, one of the issues is uh, Blinken is trying to deliver uh, its message from the Biden administration on what its attitudes to China and also to other countries. I don't think it will be uh, like a U-turn from the the precedent in the past for the uh, Biden administration's so-called competition policies to China. Well, they are also trying to put the strength on the on something to to say that uh, there are some threats from certain countries. Well, that is definitely not a good thing. I have to say that maybe in the past several years, we see many of the promises from United States to ASEAN and also some other countries about uh, so-called the the support on the infrastructure development or other projects. But these projects are not so effective or some of them or many of them are not so, you know, even taken into effect after the promises. So I believe that when the uh, when Blinken came here, he is also trying to uh, to make more promises to other countries. Well, also have, there are some discussion about the so-called IPAF, uh, which is kind of initiative by Biden administration about economic cooperation. But in that agreement, I, I, I believe that many ASEAN countries are interested in that, but it's not so easy to reach the consensus and to be more effective in the, you know, in recovering after the COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so what challenges do ASEAN countries face in navigating this um, escalating rivalry between China and the U.S.? Yeah, it's a very difficult question, or I have to say that uh, it's some test to the leaders of ASEAN countries, because for China and the United States, it's very clear that they are so different. I mean, in the different sizes uh, about, uh, you know, the economy, about uh, its uh, distance to the ASEAN countries and the importance of the market. Well, these differences are also changing very quickly because in the past, many ASEAN countries are exporting many products like the consumption uh, products uh, to the developed economies like United States is one of the very important one. Well, we can observe that there are so many trade disputes happened between United States and also some of the other countries like in the solar panels or other things. So I do believe that uh, they want to try to to find some alternative, especially when China's domestic market is growing very quickly. Well, on the other hand, I think that uh, it is also come from the United States government. Uh, uh, I mean, they're uh, alert about uh, what China is doing about the 
you know, the risks that uh, the source there is in Asian region. So uh, they are trying to put more military forces in this region, which uh, many Asian countries are hesitate or in a dilemma position. Well, in some uh, consideration, they may like to, to have that because it will benefit by some of the, the consumptions or development of uh, uh, certain sectors. But they you know, a lot of people are just refusing that. So the governments are really are in this position to trying to decide where to go. Well, the third uh, challenge is also coming from the innovation. We know that innovation is uh, one of the primary driving forces for the development of the economy. Well, in the past, maybe U.S. is very good at that. But nowadays, we see that there are more integration of ASEAN to Chinese economy, which has brought much wider and better technology that could be possible be used in the ASEAN regions, like for the e-commerce or e-wallet and many things to do with the internet. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we know, later this year, ASEAN is going to hold their first joint military exercise in the South China Sea. What message do you think uh, that move is going to send out? I, I don't think it's a very good signal, especially in this time when we see that there are already many geopolitical tensions in the world. If there are more something happened or unsettles in, the, in this area, it will definitely uh, slow down the, the recovery from the COVID and also it will also, uh, I mean, reduce the confidence in between the ASEAN countries and its neighbor. So I believe that uh, to prove or to pr- protect the, the stability is very important. While many countries, especially the countries in this regions should guarantee by the cooperation to to reduce the uncertainty in the uh, different areas like the economy or military mm-hmm. uh, some issues yes thank you dr jomi senior research fellow with chinese academy of international trade and economic cooperation you're listening to world today and coming up an expert panelist from the pacific islands forum has criticized the iaea report on japan's discharge of nuclear contaminated wastewater so what are the safety concerns there and also china releases preliminary plan for manned lunar mission how significant is that and for more you can follow us on twitter at cgtn radio we'll be back after a short break You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. A Pacific Islands Forum expert panelist has criticized the IAEA for ignoring its own principle of justification in the report on Japan's nuclear-contaminated wastewater disposal plan. The IAEA report claimed that the plan is, quote-unquote, in conformity with the agreed international standards. However, Arjun Makhijiani, president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, said the IAEA has refused to acknowledge its responsibility and has basically abandoned the countries of the Pacific region. The IAEA is set to meet with Pacific leaders next week. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. Um, so how would you assess uh, the PIF uh, uh, experts' criticism that by claiming Japan's nuclear contaminated water uh, disposal plan is in conformity with the agreed international standards, the IAEA has basically abandoned the countries of the Pacific region? 
Well, first, the, the Pacific Islands Forum was founded in 1971, and that's the same year the nuclear plant was built uh, at Fukushima. Uh, and this conflict between the PIF and Japan uh, appears almost preordained the moment uh, Japan decided to build that plant next to the sea, which the Japanese government itself has acknowledged was, ir- was irresponsible. In short, it was built there in case an accident ever happened uh, to use the sea to minimize as much as possible the negative consequences that might happen on Japanese land itself. But the fact that it uh, that uh, but the fact is that such an accident was likely to happen sooner or later, uh, as Japanese investigations themselves have determined. Not simply because they built by the sea and were exposed to greater risks associated with earthquakes and tidal waves, but also because neither TEPCO nor the government prepared sufficiently for known risks. Neither were honest or transparent about these risks as well as uh, the, uh, being responsible for oversight or possible uh, alternatives. So like the accident at Chernobyl, which involved a known but hidden design flaw, the accident at Fukushima was caused by a power company and a government that took gratuitous risk, leading to grave consequences. And let's be clear, the disaster has already released a great deal of nuclear material into the sea and atmosphere. And the decision to dump the wastewater means more might be dumped, uh, more might be uh, released as well. Uh, and, you know, what we have is TEPCO and the, Jap- and the Japanese government saying, basically, uh, you can trust us uh, again uh, this time. Now, the second uh, point to make here is that the PIF criticism of the IAEA is due specifically to the fact that the agency has not justified this plan, contrary to the agency's own safety principles. In other words, the agency has not said that this plan is justified or that there isn't a better alternative, and the PIF believes the agency's own safety standards require this. Now, third, I think it's also clear increasingly that many countries are no longer confident uh, that the international standards are robust enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so help us understand the, the, the safety concerns here, because the IAEA report says that uh, the controlled gradual release as planned by TEPCO would have a negligible radiological impact on people and the environment. So is that persuasive enough to bring light to Japan's disposal plan? Well, you know, given the history of this plant, uh, given the lack of uh, responsible government oversight, given TEPCO's own negligence, given the fact that we were told before by the company that the water was already safe, only to find that it wasn't. Uh, And now we're being uh, told that if it's dumped correctly, then it will have only a very small negative impact. I think it's clear that a lot of people are not persuaded. Uh, Indeed, there is a profound trust deficit at work here. All uh, 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 the previous mistakes um, um, and and, and, uh, even uh, uh, the willful disregard of safety um, uh, even the findings uh, that the company and the government were not transparent or, or honest in the past, um, all of these things have uh, have left it uh, so that uh, uh, it would be foolish to be confident that uh, the, com- that the company and the government are now finally going uh, to do the right thing. Uh, why should anyone accept even a, a small possible negative impact uh, to pay for the mistakes? and the responsibility of others. This is what I think a lot of people are thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, according to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which is an international treaty ratified by over 160 countries, including Japan, 
the ocean is the common heritage of mankind. And uh, according to this convention, member countries uh, must ensure that pollution arising from incidents or activities under their jurisdiction or control does not spread beyond the areas where they exercise sovereign rights. So does Japan's disposal plan uh, potentially violate the country's legal and environmental obligations? I think it's fair to say that's a fair reading of the convention. Uh, but in fact, it's not just uh, the disposal that potentially violates the country's legal and environmental obligations. It's a long list of irresponsible decisions and behaviors going back decades that absolutely can be read as already having violated uh, the country's legal and environmental obligations. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, the IAEA is scheduled to meet with uh, the Pacific leaders next week. So what outcomes or actions would you expect from this meeting, um, considering the concerns uh, that were raised by the experts and the Pacific countries regarding Japan's discharging plan? I think there will be some hard questions uh, asked that will be very difficult for the agency to answer uh, in satisfying ways. Uh, Some of these questions will be asked by those who are fundamentally opposed to nuclear power, and they will find no answers or solutions to this problem acceptable. However, there will be others who are not fundamentally opposed to nuclear power, but who are reasonably concerned that this release is unsafe. But also, they're also worried that it will set a dangerous precedent that will be used again in the future, and again be supported, but not justified by the agency. And let's keep in mind, we still have another 30 years uh, planned, uh, or, or the experts believe it will take another 30 years to, to continue to clean up this Fukushima disaster. There will be more waste associated with it, and there will be more difficult decisions about what to do with that waste. So we're not just worried about, you know, what uh, might happen with this with this current uh, wastewater, but whether or not this dumping in the sea will set a precedent for further dumping, not just and not just by TEPCO in this in this case at Fukushima, but perhaps. Uh, with other countries or or other possible disasters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does Japan have no other options but to dump the nuclear contaminated water into the sea, or they do have other choices? You know, there have been other uh, possibilities discussed, but these have not received adequate public vetting uh, and attention by uh, by TEPCO and the Japanese government. Uh, um, uh, This seems like a willful omission, that the, the, the decision to dump at sea was always going to be the one that would be the cheapest and the most politically expedient in Japan itself. So we've heard of some alternatives like burying it, but then the concern is that it might leak into uh, groundwater. So, you know, they hope, I think, uh, to dump it in the ocean and by the power of diffusion, hope it simply disappears or at least it, it minimizes the, ris- the risk to, to, to Japan itself. Mm-hmm. So as you said, this is the cheapest way to, to, to deal with uh, these contaminated water. But how would you assess the long-term economic impact of this discharging plan on Japan's economy? And what's your take on Japan's plan to subsidize the fishing industry uh, affected by the discharging of, of, of this uh, radioactive water? You know, for many years, the Japanese com- uh, economy has been uh, muddling along, uh, still tr- uh, struggling with uh, the, the middle income trap and paying uh, for problems like these, including the subsidies you mentioned, uh, with uh, one of the worst public debt problems in the world. Now, the, the Fukushima disaster has already been extremely costly uh, for Japan and, and will continue uh, to harm Japan's uh, reputation uh, and, and economy. Certainly, we'll see countries uh, banning some Japanese imports, uh, and even where that doesn't happen, uh, uh, consumers deciding to boycott products on their own. 
Um, but uh, let's recall the cleanup alone has already cost more than $200 U.S. billion, um, with the, the wider total economic cost expected to exceed a trillion dollars through time. And as I've mentioned, uh, we still have another 30 years of, of expected cleanup, uh, given uh, some of the worst aspects of the, of the uh, disaster being the, the damaged reactors. So, again, there will be more waste. And, and more controversial decision, decisions regarding what to do with these problems in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics and International Relations at East China Normal University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. New official data show China's foreign trade grew by 2.1% year-on-year in the first half of 2023. Exports rose 3.7% on a yearly basis in the first six months, while imports dipped 0.1%. As a highlight, exports of electromechanical products increased 6.3%, taking up nearly 60% of China's exports. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations remained China's largest trading partner during this period, accounting for more than 15% of the trade volume. For more, my colleague Ding Hong spoke with Professor John Gon, Vice President of Research and Strategy at University of International B- Business and Economics, Israel. What is your reading of the half-year trade figures? Um, latest data from developed countries basically are showing a sort of consistent signals of further economic weakness which can, you know, in one way or another, put a lot of pressure, additional pressure on China's exports. Is this an indication that China cannot entirely count on external factors to revive its economic growth momentum? Well, um, I think against the backdrop you have just described, uh, I think the first a half-year performance in trade is actually not bad at all, you know, compared to uh, the trade situation in other major, you know, export-oriented countries. Uh, for example, Germany, uh, you know, in Asia, Vietnam, for example. You know, I think uh, in many of these countries, the trade has been actually coming down. Uh, I think China still is able to squeeze out a little bit of a small growth. That's actually not bad at all, in my view. Uh, but regarding the Part of your question whether China can rely on its exports to, to revitalize its economy. You know that's a very difficult question in my view because uh, you know overall uh, exports accounts for about a little bit of a ten percent of total uh, China's total GDP. Uh, I think it's like eleven mm. or twelve percent. So um, you know it, it used to be the case that in old days used to be the case that the export sector is a major drive of the domestic economy, but I don't think it's anymore. So uh, mm. we won't be able to count on the foreign markets, international markets, to revitalize China's economy. Okay. So actually, as we can tell from China's imports figures um, in, in the single month of June, mm-hmm. China's domestic demand also seems to be relatively weak at the moment. So in the next few months, do you think China's um, domestic demand can somehow rebound without too much um, stimulus from the government? Um, I, I think uh, I'm actually quite encouraged by the June figure, uh, exports figure. You know, we all understand this is a very difficult time. The global economy is not doing well. But look at the the June figure um, in exports compared to uh, May and also the, the second quarter compared to the first quarter. These are all Growth numbers, in fact, 
So that means that the um, domestic economy should be able to picking up some activities, not a whole lot, I guess. But I think you know there are some signs that the things might be turning turning uh, to the uh, upside. So uh, for the rest of the year, and I, I hope this trend will continue. You know, very slowly we are climbing out of this hole, and the uh, you know quite robust export figures will percolate down uh, to uh, pockets of people who are. You know, not relatively wealthy, actually, and, and, and encourage them to spend, and, and the consumption market can pick up a little bit. Mm. So last week, Chinese Premier Li Qiang pledged to introduce targeted and coordinated policy measures and to implement them in a timely manner to stabilize growth, ensure employment, and guard against the risks. So what do you read regarding China's Economic policy directions for, say, the second half of this year. Yeah, we the market is expecting some measures from the central government, um, and, and I think what you just said uh, mentions the word targeted. Uh, you know, we understand that there are several areas of weaknesses in China's economy. For example, in the real estate uh, sector, the uh, uh, local government's uh, debt uh, issue here, and also weak consumption. So, you know, I would expect that. Targeted policies will be addressing these weaknesses. Then, in addition to this, I think there will be the traditional fiscal policy, monetary policy. You know, these kind of a sort of a broad, uh, high-level measures uh, to try to trying to stimulate the economy. But I think um, there will be some measures coming from the central government, and uh, the market is、uh, is waiting for that.、Mm. So, China's customs bureau has pointed to a. Sort of growing divergence in terms of China's trade, as trade with Southeast Asia and the Belt and Road partners outperformed trade with the United States and the European Union. For instance, China's combined value of trade with ASEAN bloc stood at 77.4 billion U.S. dollars in June. Compared to 68.8 billion U.S. dollars with the EU and 50 55.7 billion dollars with the United States, so do you, when we talk about this kind of、um, growing divergence, do you think、um, it offers any guidance to China's、um, near future trade practices in return? Absolutely,、uh, I call it this. The great or reorientation of global trade. It's actually the structural、uh, reorientation we are talking about here is not just pertaining to China. In my view, I think it's a、uh, global in nature.、Um, I, I mentioned this during a, a talk I gave at the、uh, St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. It's, it's very clear that the major leading、uh, trade uh, countries, uh, trading nations,、uh, have been seeing their Trading pattern undergoing a structural change, and this is driven by you know, quite a few reasons. China-U.S. competition is driven by many countries taking measures as a result of the COVID era.、Uh, it's a result of the, the war in Ukraine. All these reasons combined are seeing these you know, very large structural change, what I call the、uh, global reorientation.、Um, and, and China certainly is、um, undergoing that structural change as well. Um, you know, you mentioned、uh, the percentage of trade with the United States is coming down. It's actually been coming down steadily for quite a few some time,、uh, yeah. quite a few months now, right? So,、uh, 
the United States used to be the largest trading partner. Now it's only, I think, the third, right, behind ASEAN and the European Union market. So I, I see this pattern continuing, um, certainly driven by the, the China-U.S. grand competition, uh, driven by some companies, American companies in particular, you know, adopting a China plus one or plus N strategy, sort of diverting some trade to other countries. So, you know, this is happening for some time, but it's okay. I mean, I think in aggregate, um, we haven't seen China's total trade uh, coming down, even against the very adverse macro environment, against the very slowing down global market. So, uh, so I think, um, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, you know, China's trade has been faring fairly okay, not dramatically coming down. But this structural change is happening, and it's happening in a fairly significant way. Mm. So when we talk about electromechanical products, which is a highlight in China's exports, I guess we are referring to things like green technology, including Chinese-made electric vehicles, um, batteries, and solar panels, etc., etc. Now, very briefly, Professor, why do you think the shipment of these goods uh, can, can become a highlight? Well, this is the shining spot in China's exports. It's the new uh, growth area uh, in these sectors, in these industries. Chinese companies are very competitive. Uh, you know, the solar panel industry, for example, you know, Chinese companies are actually dominant um, in the in the electric car, in the electric batteries. Uh, the Ch- Chinese companies are becoming more and more dominant. In fact. Um, you know, you look at the total global electricity making capacity. I think China is over fifty percent. Uh, and look at the electric cars. So I, I mean, certainly China is taking the lead in terms of deployment of electric cars around the world. Uh, we're seeing more and more exports of these electric cars. Um, so, so these things are happening, and uh, I, I see uh, Chinese companies enjoy a huge competitive advantage. Uh, uh, which will be manifested in exports numbers. I think uh, Chinese uh, exports of automobiles is, uh, has already surpassed Germany and Japan, yeah. the world's largest exporter. And I think this trend is definitely going to continue. Um, the, um, the the climate agenda, uh, the uh, the continued penetration of electric cars, you know, that represents a global trend. So uh, it is, we're very fortunate that uh, we have a strong industry with strong Chinese companies uh, at the forefront of that. That's Professor Zhang Gong, Vice President of Research and Strategy at University of International Business and Economics, Israel, speaking with my colleague Jing Hun. This is World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China plans to land its Taikonauts on the moon for scientific exploration before 2030. According to a preliminary plan released on Wednesday, China will launch two carrier rockets to send a lunar lander and a manned spacecraft into a lunar orbit, respectively. The craft and lunar lander will rendezvous and dock with each other, and then Taikonauts will enter the lander. As the lunar lander descends and arrives at the preset area on the lunar surface, Taikonauts will carry out scientific tasks and collect samples. After completing the planned tasks, Taikonauts will return to the lander, which will lift them back to the lunar orbit to dock with their spacecraft. In the final step, the spacecraft will fly Taikonauts back to Earth with lunar samples. For more, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Fen, Associate Professor of Astronomy Department of Beijing Normal University. Um, so, Professor Zhang, what do you make of the significance of this plan for China's space exploration goals and the global space exploration landscape? 
Right. So this time, this uh, announced plan really is fixing onto a workable timetable. But before that, there's always been this plan to go to the moon. However, the, uh, the, the main rocket that was being considered is the Long March 9. It's the next generation, really powerful rocket. Uh, you can think of um, Starship for comparison. But the uh, technical difficulty co- that comes with that kind of a new, very large rocket is it, it, it's, uh, it's very high. Um, so this time, they changed to a different rocket called Long March 10, which is essentially three uh, Long March 5 bundled together. So it's a much more achievable uh, strategy. And uh, the, the way you would work in the old rocket, uh, powerful rocket, is you send the lander and the, the, uh, the, the crew module together uh, all in one mission. So the, uh, the lander doesn't need its own propulsion. But now the new thinking is that the, uh, the lander may be re- reusable. So it might need its own propulsion anyway. So now they, using this less powerful but still really powerful three times the Long March 5 uh, rocket, you can send two different missions with the lander and the orbiter separately and, the, uh, and reuse the lander uh, from time to time. So, and now this new, tech, new proposal uh, gives you the ability, because all the technology are essentially there, so you, you have the, the ability to fix onto a timeline. So that's quite significant. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lunar landing plan includes, includes the collection of lunar samples. So what scientific objectives and research possibilities does uh, the collection of these samples present, and how could they contribute to our understanding of the moon and the broader field of planetary science? Right. So the, uh, the, the lunar sample, the most direct uh, thing you can learn is the uh, lunar geology. So we know roughly, we, we, we agree that the moon is made by, uh, by the Earth sort of colliding with a proto-planet uh, the, uh, the size of Mars. But we don't know much about uh, the composition, the, uh, the, the properties of that other celestial object, and we don't even have sort of uh, smoking gun evidence for this proposal uh, either. So having actual samples that you can, you can um, examine, you, you sort of uh, get, get to know that a bit more. And also there's the issue of the, um, the, the moon doesn't have a strong magnetic field to protect it from solar radiation. So you have a lot of solar winds depositing material. The famous helium-3 is one of those things that you can, uh, you can look for on the moon. Um, so, so that's a study of the, of the solar activity as well. Um, so the whole thing also helps to map out resources you can possibly mine on the moon in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, China aims to develop a lunar research station and conduct systematic and long-term lunar exploration. So could you share some insights into the potential on scientific experiments and research areas that such a station could facilitate? Um, so the most important experiments they would do is, uh, is in situ sort of a resource utilization to, to, you know, use the material on the moon to build buildings, to extract water. Um, so, you, so you can either sort of permanently stay on the moon or use the moon as an as a, as a intermediate way station for further, for further missions into deeper space. And other things, the moon has, um, has the potential for doing a lot of interesting sort of astronomy because the uh, the earth's environment the light the uh, the radio waves it is too noisy you can go to the moon to do uh, to do astronomy and one project um, i have been personally pushing for is to put a sort of essentially a, a very sensitive seismometer on the moon to detect the uh, the moon's reaction to gravitational waves uh, which would squash and squeeze the moon um, so that would uh, that would constitute 
So we use the moon as a whole as a as, a, as a essentially a, re, uh, a telescope for gravitational waves. Um, so there there are a whole lot of things you can do uh, once you have hold on the moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds really interesting. And in terms of international co- collaboration, how open is China to cooperating with other space agencies or countries uh, in in those lunar exploration uh, endeavors? Right. So, so China is, is very open in its uh, in its space exploration. So, Russia is is almost fully integrated. Um, some of the Russian probes, Lunar Twenty Five through Twenty Eight, is actually part of this international lunar station, um, and, and the Chinese probes uh, as well. Uh, they will be launched separately, um, essentially working separately uh, initially. Uh, but the data will all contribute to the uh, to the construction of, of the station, and then later on, uh, it's called International Lunar Research Station. And China is, is openly soliciting um, proposals for experiments, for even science modules. So the station is it, not uh, it, it, it consists of many instruments, sort of all situated separately. Uh, you sort of hop between them. So it's very easy for a international partner to contribute one of the stations. Um, they can even launch them themselves. Um, so so it, 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 this, this sort of collaboration is all open not only to space-faring nations uh, that have their own launch capabilities, but also to other nations that would, uh, would like to do things like experiments uh, to, to, to be carried on Chinese missions as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Zhang Fen, Associate Professor of Astronomy Depart- Department of Beijing Normal University. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.